Chapter Eleven of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter Eleven. The Order Clerk. A lady well known in New York society was the next person summoned. She was a friend of the Van Burnham family, and had known Howard from childhood. She had not liked his marriage. Indeed, she rather participated in the family feeling against it. But when young Mrs. Van Burnham came to her house on the preceding Monday, and begged the privilege of remaining with her for one night, she had not had the heart to refuse her. Mrs. Van Burnham had therefore slept in her house on Monday night. Questioned in regard to that lady's appearance and manner, she answered that her guest was unnaturally cheerful, laughing much and showing a great vivacity, that she gave no reason for her good spirit, nor did she mention her own affairs in any way, rather took pains not to do so. How long did she stay? Till the next morning. And how was she dressed? Just as Miss Ferguson has described. Did she bring her handbag to your house? Yes, and left it there. We found it in her room after she was gone. Indeed, and how do you account for that? She was preoccupied. I saw it in her cheerfulness, which was forced and not always well-timed. And where is that bag now? Mr. Van Burnham has it. We kept it for a day, and as she did not call for it, sent it down to the office on Wednesday morning. Before you had heard of the murder? Oh, yes, before I had heard anything about the murder. As she was your guest, you probably accompanied her to the door? I did, sir. Did you notice her hands? Can you say what was the color of her gloves? I do not think she wore any gloves on leaving. It was very warm, and she held them in her hand. I remember this, for I noticed the sparkle of her rings as she turned to say good-bye. Ah, you saw her rings. Distinctly so that when she left you she was dressed in a black-and-white plaid silk, had a large hat covered with flowers on her head, and wore rings. Yes, sir. And with these words ringing in the ears of the jury, the witness sat down. What was coming? Something important, or the coroner would not look so satisfied, or the faces of the officials about him so expectant. I waited with great but subdued eagerness for the testimony of the next witness, who is a young man by the name of Callahan. I don't like young men in general. They are either over-suave and polite, as if they condescended to remember that you are elderly and that it is their duty to make you forget it, or else they are pert and shallow and disgust you with their egotism. But this young man looked sensible and businesslike, and I took to him at once, though what connection he could have with this affair I could not imagine. His first words, however, settled all questions as to his personality. He was the order clerk at Altman's. As he acknowledged this, I seemed to have some faint premonition of what was coming. Perhaps I had not been without some vague idea of the truth ever since I had put my mind to work on this matter. Perhaps my wits only received their real spur then. But certainly I knew what he was going to say as soon as he opened his lips, which gave me quite a good opinion of myself, 
whether rightfully or not, I leave you to judge. His evidence was short, but very much to the point. On the 17th of September, as could be verified by the books, the firm had received an order for a woman's complete outfit to be sent C.O.D. to Mrs. James Pope at the Hotel D. on Broadway. Sizes and measures and some particulars were stated, and as the order bore the words, In Haste, underlined upon it, several clerks had assisted him in filling the order, which, when filled, had been sent by special messenger to the place designated. Had he this order with him? He had. And could he identify the articles sent to fill it? He could. At which the coroner motioned to an officer, and a pile of clothing was brought forward from some mysterious corner and laid before the witness. Immediately expectation rose to a high pitch, for everyone recognized, or thought they did, the apparel which had been taken from the victim. The young man, who was of the alert, nervous type, took up the articles one by one and examined them closely. As he did so, the whole assembled crowd surged forward, and lightning-like glances from a hundred eyes followed his every movement and expression. "'Are they the same?' inquired the coroner. The witness did not hesitate. With one quick glance at the blue serge dress, black cape, and battered hat, he answered in a firm tone, "'They are.' and a clue was given at last to the dreadful mystery absorbing us. The deep-drawn sigh which swept through the room testified to the universal satisfaction. Then our attention became fixed again, for the coroner, pointing to the undergarments accompanying the articles already mentioned, demanded if they had been included in the order. There was as little hesitation in the reply given to this question as to the former. He recognized each piece as having come from his establishment. You will note, said he, that they have never been washed and that the pencil marks are still on them. Very good, observed the coroner, and you will note that one article there is torn down the back. Was it in that condition when sent? It was not, sir. All were in perfect order? Most assuredly, sir. Very good again. The jury will take cognizance of this fact, which may be useful to them in their future conclusions. And now, Mr. Callahan, do you notice anything lacking here from the list of articles forwarded by you? No, sir. Yet there is one very necessary adjunct to a woman's outfit which is not to be found here. Yes, sir, the shoes, but I am not surprised at that. We sent shoes, but they were not satisfactory, and they were returned. Ah, I see. Officer, show the witness the shoes that were taken from the deceased. This was done, and when Mr. Callahan had examined them, the coroner inquired if they came from his store. He replied no, whereupon they were held up to the jury, and attention called to the fact that, while rather new than old, they gave signs of having been worn more than once, which was not true of anything else taken from the victim. This matter settled, the coroner proceeded with his questions. Who carried the articles ordered to the address given? A man in our employ named Clapp. Did he bring back the amount of the bill? Yes, sir, less the five dollars charged for the shoes. What was the amount, may I ask? 
here is our cash book sir the amount received from mrs james pope hotel d on the seventeenth of september is as you see seventy five dollars and fifty eight cents let the jury see the book also the order they were both handed to the jury and if ever i wished myself in any one's shoes save my own very substantial ones it was at that moment i did so want to peep at that order it seemed to interest the jury also for their heads drew together very eagerly over it and some whispers and a few knowing looks passed between them finally one of them spoke it is written in a very odd hand do you call this a woman's writing or a man's i have no opinion to give on the subject rejoined the witness it is intelligible writing and that is all that comes within my province the twelve men shifted on their seats and surveyed the coroner eagerly why did he not proceed evidently he was not quick enough to suit them have you any further questions for this witness asked that gentleman after a short delay their nervousness increased but no one ventured to follow the coroner's suggestion a poor lot i call them a very poor lot i would have found plenty of questions to put to him i expected to see the man clapp called next but i was disappointed in this the name uttered was henshaw and the person who rose in answer to it was a tall burly man with a shock of curly black hair he was the clerk of the hotel d and we all forgot clapp in our eagerness to hear what this man had to say his testimony amounted to this that a person by the name of pope was registered on his books that she came to his house on the seventeenth of september sometime near noon that she was not alone that a person she called her husband accompanied her and that they had been given a room at her request on the second floor overlooking broadway did you see the husband was it his handwriting we see in your register no sir he came into the office but he did not approach the desk it was she who registered for them both and who did all the business in fact i thought it queer but took it for granted he was ill for he held his head very much down and acted as if he felt disturbed or anxious did you notice him closely would you be able to identify him on sight no sir i should not he looked like a hundred other men i see every day medium in height and build with brown hair and brown moustache not noticeable in any way sir except for his hang-dog air and evident desire not to be noticed but you saw him later no sir after he went to his room he stayed there and no one saw him i did not even see him when he left the house his wife paid the bill and he did not come into the office but you saw her well you would know her again perhaps sir but i doubt it she wore a thick veil when she came in and though i might remember her voice i have no recollection of her features for i did not see them you can give a description of her dress though surely you must have looked long enough at a woman who wrote her own and her husband's name in your register for you to remember her clothes yes for they were very simple she had on what is called a gossamer which covered her from neck to toe and on her head a hat wrapped all about with a blue veil so that she might have worn any dress under that gossamer yes sir and any hat under that veil any one that was large enough sir very good now did you see her hands 
Not to remember them. Did she have gloves on? I cannot say. I did not stand and watch her, sir. That is a pity, but you say you heard her voice. Yes, sir. Was it a lady's voice? Was her tone refined and her language good? They were, sir. When did they leave? How long did they remain in your house? They left in the evening after tea, I should say. How? On foot or in a carriage? In a carriage, one of the hacks that stand in front of the door. Did they bring any baggage with them? No, sir. Did they take any away? The lady carried a parcel. What kind of parcel? A brown paper parcel like clothing done up. And the gentleman? I did not see him. Was she dressed in the same in going as in coming? To all appearance, except her hat, that was smaller. She had the gossamer on still then? Yes, sir. And a veil? Yes, sir. Only that the hat it covered was smaller? Yes, sir. And now, how did you account to yourself for the parcel and the change of hat? I didn't account for them. I didn't think anything about them at the time. But since I have had the subject brought to my mind, I find it easy enough. She had a package delivered to her while she was in our house, or rather packages. They were quite numerous, I believe. Can you recall the circumstances of their delivery? Yes, sir. The man who brought the packages said that they had not been paid for, so I allowed him to carry them to Mrs. James Pope's room. When he went away, he had but one small parcel with him, the rest he had left. And this is all you can tell us about this singular couple. Had they no meals in your house? No, sir, the gentleman, or I suppose I should say the lady, sir, for the order was given in her voice, sent for two dozen oysters and a bottle of ale, which were furnished to them in their rooms, but they didn't come to the dining room. Is the boy here who carried up those articles? He is, sir. And the chambermaid who attended their rooms? Yes, sir. Then you may answer this question, and we will excuse you. How was the gentleman dressed when you saw him? In a linen duster and a felt hat. Let the jury remember that. And now let us hear from Richard Clapp. Is Richard Clapp in the room? I am, sir, answered a cheery voice, and a lively young man with a shrewd eye and a wide-awake manner popped up from behind a portly woman, on a side seat and rapidly came forward. He was asked several questions before the leading one which we all expected, but I will not record them here. The question which brought the reply most eagerly anticipated was this. Do you remember being sent to the Hotel D with several packages for a Mrs. James Pope? I do, sir. Did you deliver them in person? Did you see the lady? A peculiar look crossed his face, and we all leaned forward, but his answer brought a shock of disappointment with it. No, I didn't, sir. She wouldn't let me in. She bade me lay the things down by the door and wait in the rear hall till she called me. And you did this? Yes, sir. But you kept your eye on the door, of course. Naturally, sir. And saw? A hand steal out and take in the things. A woman's hand? No, a man's. I saw the white cuff. And how long was it before they called you? Fifteen minutes, I should say. I heard a voice cry, Here, and seeing their door open, I went toward it.
but by the time I reached it it was shut again, and I only heard the lady say that all the articles but the shoes were satisfactory, and would I thrust the bill in under the door. I did so, and they were some minutes counting out the change, but presently the door opened slightly, and I saw a man's hand holding out the money, which was correct to the scent. "'You need not receipt the bill,' cried the lady from somewhere in the room. "'Give him the shoes and let him go.' So I received the shoes in the same mysterious way I had the money, and seeing no reason for waiting longer, pocketed the bills and returned to the store. Has the jury any further questions to ask the witness? Of course not. They were ninnies, all of them, and... But contrary to my expectation, one of them did perk up courage, and wriggling very much on his seat, ventured to ask if the cuff he had seen on the man's hand when it was thrust through the doorway had a button in it the answer was disappointing the witness had not noticed any the juror somewhat abashed sank into silence at which another of the precious twelve inspired no doubt by the other's example blurted out then what was the color of the coat sleeve you surely can remember that but another disappointment awaited us. He did not wear any coat. It was a shirt-sleeve I saw. A shirt-sleeve, there was no clue in that. A visible look of dejection spread through the room, which was not dissipated till another witness stood up. This time it was the bell-boy of the hotel who had been on duty that day. His testimony was brief and added but little to the general knowledge. He had been summoned more than once by these mysterious parties, but only to receive his orders through a closed door. He had not entered the room at all. He was followed by the chambermaid, who testified that she was in the room once while they were there, that she saw them both then, but did not catch a glimpse of their faces. Mr. Pope was standing in the window almost entirely shielded by the curtains, and Mrs. Pope was busy hanging up something in the wardrobe. The gentleman had on his duster, and the lady her gossamer. It was but a few minutes after their arrival. Questioned in regard to the state of the room after they left, she said that there was a lot of brown paper lying about, marked B. Altman, but nothing else that did not belong there. Not a tag, nor a hat-pin, nor a bit of memorandum lying on bureau or table? Nothing, sir, so far as I mind. I wasn't on the lookout for anything, sir. They were a queer couple, but we have lots of queer couples at our house. And the most I notices, sir, is those what remember the chambermaid and those what don't. This couple was of the kind what don't. Did you sweep the room after their departure? I always does. They went late, so I swept the room the next morning. And threw the sweepings away, of course. "'Of course, would you have me keep them for treasures?' "'It might have been well if you had,' muttered the coroner. "'The combings from the lady's hair might have been very useful in establishing her identity.' The porter who has charge of the lady's entrance was the last witness from this house. He had been on duty on the evening in question, and had noticed this couple leaving. They both carried packages and had attracted his attention first by the long old-fashioned duster which the gentleman wore, and secondly by the pains they both took not to be observed by anyone. The woman was veiled, as had already been said, 
and the man held his package in such a way as to shield his face entirely from observation. "'So that you would not know him if you saw him again?' asked the coroner. "'Exactly, sir,' was the uncompromising answer. As he sat down, the coroner observed, "'You will note from this testimony, gentlemen, that this couple signing themselves Mr. and Mrs. James Pope of Philadelphia left this house dressed each in a long garment, eminently fitted for purposes of concealment, he in a linen duster, and she in a gossamer. Let us now follow this couple a little farther, and see what became of these disguising articles of apparel. Is Seth Brown here? A man who was so evidently a hackman, that it seemed superfluous to ask him what his occupation was, shuffled forward at this. It was in his hack that this couple had left the D. He remembered them very well, as he had good reason to, first because the man paid him before entering the carriage, saying that he was to let them out at the northwest corner of Madison Square, and secondly, but here the coroner interrupted him to ask if he had seen the gentleman's face when he paid him. The answer was, as might have been expected, no, it was dark, and he did not turn his head. Didn't you think it queer to be paid before you reached your destination? Yes, but the rest was queerer. After I had taken the money, I never refuses money, sir, and was expecting him to get into the hack, he steps up to me again and says in a lower tone than before, My wife is very nervous, drive slow, if you please and when you reach the place I have named, watch your horses carefully, for if they should move while she is getting out, the shock would throw her into a spasm. As she had looked very pert and lively, I thought this mighty queer, and I tried to get a peep at his face. But he was too smart for me, and was in the carriage before I could clap my eye on him. But you were more fortunate when they got out. You surely saw one or both of them then. No, sir, I didn't. I had to watch the horses' heads, you know. I shouldn't like to be the cause of a young lady having a spasm. Do you know in what direction they went? East, I should say. I heard them laughing long after I had whipped up my horses. A queer couple, sir, that puzzled me some, though I should not have thought of them twice if I had not found next day. Well... The gentleman's linen duster and the neat brown gossamer which the lady had worn lying folded under the two back cushions of my hack, a present for which I was very much obliged to them, but which I was not long allowed to enjoy, for yesterday the police... Well, well, no matter about that. Here is a duster and here is a brown gossamer. Are these the articles you found under your cushions? If you will examine the neck of the lady's gossamer you can soon tell, sir. There was a small hole in the one I found, as if something had been snipped out of it, the owner's name most likely. Or the name of the place where it was bought, suggested the coroner, holding the garment up to view so as to reveal a square hole under the collar. That's it, cried the hackman, that's the very one. Shame, I say, to spoil a new garment that way. Why do you call it new? asked the coroner. "'because it hasn't a mud-spot or even a mark of dust upon it. "'We looked it all over, my wife and I, "'and decided it had not been long off the shelf. "'A pretty good haul for a poor man like me, "'and if the police—' "'But here he was cut short again by an important question. 
There is a clock but a short distance from the place where you stopped. Did you notice what time it was when you drove away? Yes, sir, I don't know why I remember it, but I do. As I turned to go back to the hotel, I looked up at this clock. It was half past eleven. End of chapter eleven. Chapter twelve. The Keys. We were all by this time greatly interested in the proceedings, and when another hackman was called, we recognized at once that an effort was about to be made to connect this couple with the one who had alighted at Mr. Van Burnham's door. The witness, who was a melancholy chap, kept his stand on the east side of the square. At about twenty minutes to twelve, he was awakened from a nap he had been taking on the top of his coach by a sharp rap on his whip-arm, and looking down he saw a lady and gentleman standing at the door of his vehicle. "'We want to go to Gramercy Park,' said the lady. "'Drive us there at once.' I nodded, for what is the use of wasting words when it can be avoided, and they stepped at once into the coach. "'Can you describe them? Tell us how they looked?' "'I never noticed people. Besides, it was dark.' but he had a swell air, and she was pert and merry, for she laughed as she closed the door. Can't you remember how they were dressed? No, sir, she had on something that flapped about her shoulders, and he had a dark hat on his head, but that was all I saw. Didn't you see his face? Not a bit of it, he kept it turned away. He didn't want nobody looking at him. She did all the business. Then you saw her face? Yes, for a minute, but I wouldn't know it again. She was young and purty, and her hand which dropped the money into mine was small, but I couldn't say no more, not if you was to give me the town. Did you know that the house you stopped at was Mr. Van Burnham's, and that it was supposed to be empty? No, sir, I'm not one of the swell ones. My acquaintances live in another part of the town. But you noticed that the house was dark? I may have, I don't know. And that is all you have to tell us about them? No, sir. The next morning, which was yesterday, sir, as I was a-dustin' out the coach, I found under the cushions a large blue veil folded and lying very flat, but it had been slit with a knife and could not be worn. This was strange, too, and while more than one person about me ventured an opinion, I muttered to myself, James Pope, his mark, astonished at a coincidence which so completely connected the occupants of the two coaches. But the coroner was able to produce a witness whose evidence carried the matter on still farther. A policeman in full uniform testified next, and after explaining that his beat led him from Madison Avenue to 3rd on 27th Street, went on to say that as he was coming up this street on Tuesday evening, some few minutes before midnight, he encountered, somewhere between Lexington Avenue and Third, a man and woman walking rapidly towards the latter avenue, each carrying a parcel of some dimensions, that he noted them because they seemed so merry, but would have thought nothing of it if he had not presently perceived them coming back without the parcels. They were chatting more gaily than ever. The lady wore a short cape, and the gentleman a dark coat, but he could give no other description of their appearance, for they went by rapidly, and he was more interested in wondering what they had done with such large parcels 
in such a short time at that hour of night than in noting how they looked or whither they were going he did observe however that they proceeded towards madison square and remembers now that he heard a carriage suddenly drive away from that direction the coroner asked him but one question had the lady no parcel when you saw her last i saw none could she not have carried one under her cape perhaps if it was small enough as small as a lady's hat say well it would have to be smaller than some of them are now sir and so terminated this portion of the inquiry a short delay followed the withdrawal of this witness the coroner who was a somewhat portly man and who had felt the heat of the day very much leaned back and looked anxious while the jury always restless moved in their seats like a set of schoolboys and seemed to long for the hour of adjournment notwithstanding the interest which everybody but themselves seemed to take in this exciting investigation finally an officer who had been sent into the adjoining room came back with a gentleman who was no sooner recognized as mr franklin van burnham than a great change took place in the countenances of all present the coroner sat forward and dropped the large palm-leaf fan he had been industriously using for the last few minutes the jury settled down and the whispering of the many curious ones about me grew less audible and finally ceased altogether a gentleman of the family was about to be interrogated and such a gentleman i have purposely refrained from describing this best known and best reputed member of the van burnham family foreseeing this hour when he would attract the attention of a hundred eyes and when his appearance would require our special notice i will therefore endeavor to picture him to you as he looked on this memorable morning with just the simple warning that you must not expect me to see with the eyes of a young girl or even with those of a fashionable society woman i know a man when i see him and i had always regarded mr franklin as an exceptionally fine-looking and prepossessing gentleman but i shall not go into raptures as i heard a girl behind me doing nor do i feel like acknowledging him as a paragon of all virtues as mrs cunningham did that evening in my parlor he is a medium-sized man with a shape not unlike his brother's his hair is dark and so are his eyes but his mustache is brown and his complexion quite fair he carries himself with distinction and though his countenance in repose has a precise air that is not perfectly agreeable it has when he speaks or smiles an expression at once keen and amiable on this occasion he failed to smile and though his elegance was sufficiently apparent his worth was not so much so yet the impression generally made was favorable as one could perceive from the air of respect with which his testimony was received he was asked many questions some were germane to the matter in hand and some seemed to strike wide of all mark he answered them all courteously showing a manly composure in doing so that served to calm the fever heat into which many had been thrown by the stories of the two hackmen but as his evidence up to this point related merely to minor concerns this was neither strange nor conclusive the real test began when the coroner with a certain bluster 
which may have been meant to attract the attention of the jury, now visibly waning, or, as was more likely, may have been the unconscious expression of a secret, if hitherto well-concealed, embarrassment. Asked the witness whether the keys to his father's front door had any duplicates. The answer came in a decidedly changed tone. No, the key used by our agent opens the basement door only. The coroner showed his satisfaction. No duplicates, he repeated. Then you will have no difficulty in telling us where the keys to your father's front door were kept during the family's absence. Did the young man hesitate, or was it but imagination on my part? They were usually in my possession. Usually. There was irony in that tone. Evidently the coroner was getting the better of his embarrassment, if he had felt any. And where were they on the 17th of this month? Were they in your possession then? No, sir. The young man tried to look calm and at his ease, but the difficulty he felt in doing so was apparent. On the morning of that day, he continued, I passed them over to my brother. Ah, here was something tangible as well as important. I began to fear the police understood themselves only too well and so did the whole crowd of persons there assembled. A groan in one direction was answered by a sigh in another, and it needed all the coroner's authority to prevent an outbreak. Meanwhile, Mr. Van Burnham stood erect and unwavering, though his eye showed the suffering which these demonstrations awakened. He did not turn in the direction of the room, where we felt sure his family was gathered, but it was evident that his thoughts did, and that most painfully. The coroner, on the contrary, showed little or no feelings. He had brought the investigation up to this critical point, and felt fully competent to carry it further. "'May I ask,' said he, "'where the transference of these keys took place?' "'I gave them to him in our office last Tuesday morning. He said he might want to go into the house before his father came home.' Did he say why he wanted to go into the house? No. Was he in the habit of going into it alone and during the family's absence? No. Had he any clothing there or any articles belonging to himself or his wife which he would be likely to wish to carry away? No. Yet he wanted to go in. He said so. And you gave him the keys without question? Certainly, sir. Was that not opposed to your usual principles, to your way of doing things, I should say? Perhaps, but principles, by which I suppose you mean my usual business methods, do not govern me in my relations with my brother. He asked me a favor, and I granted it. It would have to have been a much larger one for me to have asked an explanation from him before doing so. Yet you are not on good terms with your brother. At least you have not had the name of being for some time. We have had no quarrel. Did he return the keys you lent him? No. Have you seen them since? No. Would you know them if they were shown you? I would know them if they unlocked our front door. But you would not know them on sight? I don't think so. Mr. Van Burnham, it is disagreeable for me to go into family matters. But if you have had no quarrel with your brother, how comes it that you and he have had so little intercourse of late? 
he has been in connecticut and i at long branch is not that a good answer sir good but not good enough you have a common office in new york have you not certainly the firm's office and you sometimes meet there even while residing in different localities yes our business calls us in at times and then we meet of course do you talk when you meet talk of other matters besides business i mean are your relations friendly do you show the same spirit towards each other as you did three years ago say we are older perhaps we are not quite so voluble but do you feel the same no i see you will have it and so i will no longer hold back the truth we are not as brotherly in our intercourse as we used to be but there is no animosity between us i have a decided regard for my brother this was said quite nobly and i liked him for it but i began to feel that perhaps it had been for the best after all that i had never been intimate with the family but i must not forestall either events or my opinions is there any reason it is the coroner of course who is speaking why there should be any falling off in your mutual confidence has your brother done anything to displease you we did not like his marriage was it an unhappy one it was not a suitable one did you know mrs van burnham well that you say this yes i knew her but the rest of the family did not yet they shared in your disapprobation they felt the marriage more than i did the lady excuse me i never like to speak ill of the sex was not lacking in good sense or virtue but she was not the person we had a right to expect howard to marry and you let him see that you thought so how could we do otherwise even after she had been his wife for some months we could not like her did your brother i am sorry to press this matter ever show that he felt your change of conduct towards him i find it equally hard to answer was the quick reply my brother is of an affectionate nature and he has some if not all of the family's pride i think he did feel it though he never said so he is not without loyalty to his wife mr van burnham of whom does the firm doing business under the name of van burnham and sons consist of the three persons mentioned no others no has there ever been in your hearing any threat made by the senior partner of dissolving this firm as it stands i have heard i felt sorry for this strong but far from heartless man but i would not have stopped the inquiry at this point if i could i was far too curious i have heard my father say that he would withdraw if howard did not whether he would have done so i consider open to doubt my father is a just man and never fails to do the right thing though he sometimes speaks with unnecessary harshness he made the threat however yes and howard heard it or of it i cannot say which mr van burnham have you noticed any change in your brother since this threat was uttered how sir what change in his treatment of his wife or in his attitude towards yourself i have not seen him in the company of his wife since they went to haddam as for his conduct towards myself i can say no more than i have already we have never forgotten that we are children of one mother 
Mr. Van Burnham, how many times have you seen Mrs. Howard Van Burnham? Several, more frequently before they were married than since. You were in your brother's confidence then, at the time, knew he was contemplating marriage? It was in my endeavors to prevent the match that I saw so much of Miss Louise Stapleton. Ah, I am glad of the explanation. I was just going to inquire why you, of all members of the family, were the only one to know your brother's wife by sight. The witness, considering this question answered, made no reply. But the next suggestion could not be passed over. If you saw Mrs. Van Burnham so often, you are acquainted with her personal appearance? Sufficiently so, as well as I know that of my ordinary calling acquaintance. Was she light or dark? She had brown hair. Similar to this, the lock held up was the one which had been cut from the head of the dead girl. Yes, somewhat similar to that. The tone was cold, but he could not hide his distress. Mr. Van Burnham, have you looked well at the woman who was found murdered in your father's house? I have, sir. Is there anything in her general outline or in such features as have escaped disfigurement to remind you of Mrs. Howard Van Burnham? I may have thought so at first glance, he replied with decided effort. And did you change your mind at the second? He looked troubled, but answered firmly, No, I cannot say that I did, but you must not regard my opinion as conclusive, he hastily added. My knowledge of the lady was comparatively slight. The jury will take that into account. All we want to know now is whether you can assert from any knowledge you have, or from anything to be noted in the body itself, that it is not Mrs. Howard Van Burnham. I cannot. And with this solemn assertion, his examination closed. The remainder of the day was taken up in trying to prove a similarity between Mrs. Van Burnham's handwriting and that of Mrs. James Pope, as seen in the register of the Hotel D., and on the order sent to Altman's. But the only conclusion reached was that the latter might be the former disguised, and even on this point the experts differed. End of chapter 12